Okay, Dr. Badia here for another weekly episode of Fixing Healthcare from the Trenches. Uh, today, I think uh, we have our our most, uh, if not our most esteemed, certainly our most influential uh, guest in, uh, that we've had until now. Uh, Dr. Tom Price is an orthopedic surgeon, uh, keeping with the tradition of getting clinicians who are uh, disruptors and active in trying to improve our healthcare system. And he is a fellow orthopedic surgeon. I'm uh, uh, very proud to say that he uh, also uh, was a U.S. Uh, congressman. And I'll, I'll go over a little bit more of his uh, background. But I want to say that, that he uh, started his, his uh, career in Michigan. He is a Michigan guy. Both his father and, uh, and grandpa were, were physicians. And he used to make rounds, house calls with his grandfather uh, at a very young age and was inspired uh, very much like myself in seeing uh, uh, family members who uh, in Cuba who were who were physicians. Um, he then um, he, he uh, did his uh, medical school uh, as well as undergraduate work at Michigan, and then uh, went to uh, Emory for his uh, orthopedic residency uh, surgery residency, and then stayed there, uh, settled in a suburb, and uh, that's. Uh, uh, after founding uh, Resurgence, which I think might still be the largest uh, uh, orthopedic group in the country, um, he then uh, became a U.S. congressman representing a district in in Georgia, and then was um, for uh, about a one-year period of time the Secretary of Health and Human Services under the last administration. So he's going to bring a lot of insight. I'd like to now introduce Dr. Tom Price. Dr. Body, okay, what uh, what a joy it is to be with you today, and I appreciate this opportunity. And I know that you've been working long and hard on trying to solve the healthcare challenges <laughs> that we have. So it's a it's a great privilege to be with you. Thank you. Well, I I I think that there is uh, some progress, and maybe you'll be able to comment with somebody who knows a lot more inside information on some of the recent acts, um, including um, there's several um, uh, bills in the House. Uh, re, uh, one is entitled "Little." little cumbersome, reducing medically unnecessary delays in CARE Act. Um, and then the one bill that apparently got unanimous, I mean, nowadays to get bipartisan support for something shows that the American public really needs this. Um, and that is the Improving Seniors uh, Access to CARE Act, uh, Bill HR 3173. Uh, maybe you can comment on those uh, on those bills. Yeah, I think that the, the obviously the goal is to get more folks covered and to be able to allow them to access the system in a in a more streamlined fashion. Um, the the one of the things that I learned in my nearly thirteen years in the Congress was uh, that that the title of the bill doesn't always necessarily convey what's actually in the bill, and so okay. you've got to be very careful about about just saying, yeah, that sounds like a great bill and then and, and, and be supportive of it. Uh, the concerns that I have about some of those are, are, are that they, they tend to put more authority in the hands of, of the individuals who are running CMS or, or who are in, in charge of the bureaucracy. Um, that's, that's not always bad, but oftentimes in healthcare, as you know, it is because they're making decisions that move the decision-making process further away from the physician and the patient and the fam patient's family. Um, so uh, we, 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 we look cautiously upon those pieces of legislation, but I'm excited that, that actually Congress is looking at taking uh, um, action in the area of healthcare because so often what happens is that they just cede it to the administration, uh, the president and the executive branch, and, and, and then you don't get the people's input into that process. 
I see that, 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 that that's very interesting because the, uh, the, the problem I think is uh, perhaps a lack of understanding of the process. Uh, we, I think if you ask the average person are very frustrated with how they access healthcare, how cumbersome it's become and this, this concept of authorization, uh, as you may know, in, in my book, I have a subtitle that I say authorization is a four letter word, <laughs> which obviously it's not because it's really an absurd concept. And um, the, you, you bring up some interesting points that that if it's going to be even more difficult for uh, the clinicians, the people in charge of of uh, our health care, then then we're not really solving the problem. That's right. Um, I want to share just yesterday I, I tried and I'm, you know, I think people know I'm very outspoken. Um, that's why I would never be able to do your job. And I, I salute what you were able to do for 13 years. Uh, there's no way I would get elected because uh, I can tell you yesterday, I had a very unfortunate uh, discourse with one of the uh, the major leaders of Blue Cross Blue Shield down here in South Florida, where I simply wanted to meet with them and, and say, look, we have shared goals. And, I, and I'll say this publicly, there is a purposeful veil and barrier between the people who pay for health care and the people who actually provide it. Exactly. Right? And that is an absurd thing. I just wanted to meet, you know, I, I don't know what you drink, Tom, but I wanted to meet the guy and just, you know, buy him a bourbon and just sit down, right? Or, or a coffee. Well, it'd be, <laughs> I, those, those kinds of meetings would be incredibly helpful. And, that, and, exactly. and I mean, your, your experience highlights the fact that they don't occur. Uh, and prior authorization is a classic example. Most patients don't appreciate that. Then when they when they go to the doctor, the, the patient and the doctor talk about what it is they think needs to be done in order to either diagnose or to to treat a problem. Uh, but then the doctor and or his his or her staff has to go back and make sure that it's okay with the insurance company, make sure that it's okay with the health plan. Um, those folks that they're talking to on the line, as you well know, tend not to be clinicians, maybe a nurse possibly, but oftentimes tend not to be a clinician. And so it's just algorithmic medicine, which doesn't make it make uh, the, us responsive to the unique nature that every single patient brings to your door and every physician's door when they go in to see their doctor. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you hit the nail on the head is that the, 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 the appropriate clinician is the one who should be making these decisions. And if we, if we could cut out all this fat from the cost, because that person who's sitting there at a desk giving you that silly number called yeah. an authorization has, as they should, has a salary and benefits. Right. And, and, it, and it just ends up being a cogwheel in the system. But I think yesterday was very telling to me when I, I really wanted to sit down with this person at this insurance company and say, look, we we understand. I'm. A, I'm. A, I'll say it. I am a capitalist. I'm. A, you know. I understand that the insurance company wants to make money. I'm fine with that. But what if I told them that we can help you to do that? Because you're. 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 The. The number of steps a patient goes through. They all have to be paid for to to some degree right. by the insurance company, right? So why not get them to the right person? I mean, you and I, Dr. Price, are both orthopedic surgeons, but we might not be the right person to you know give an authorization for a particular spine procedure exactly yeah we don't we don't know now if for me as a as a hand surgeon yes if i had a hand colleague an active practicing colleague who weighed in on this i would be okay with that because you know i can make mistakes or and we need oversight but um but i i think that these bills uh i don't know what your thoughts are but do, do you think that these, these there's several bills right now on this topic, do you think that this shows that there is an appetite now for real change? Well, I, I, 
I think that they're nibbling at the, at the margins. Um, the, the, the challenge that we have, I mean, good medicine makes good business. And I always used to say that for folks, if you take care of the patient the right way, the first time and that through that process, then you're saving not just the patient money, but you're saving the insurance company money or you're saving Medicare money or Medicaid money. Um, and so, so quality medicine, high quality medicine makes absolutely good business sense. Now, the challenge that we have is that that in, in Washington, our healthcare system, as you well know, you know, uh, uh, as well as anybody, is just a glommed on system. It's a system that that wasn't uh, thought out strategically. It's one where a decision was made and then another decision was made and another decision was made. And then they tried to patch that decision on and on and on. And that's happened over the last 60, 70 years. And, and what we end up with is a system that's siloed. So you've got a healthcare system for seniors. For those at the lower end of the economic spectrum, those in the private health system, those in the in the concierge system, those in the VA, on and on and on, and right. none of those systems talk to each other. Right. And so we wonder why on earth we've got the challenges that we've got. And the reason is we don't have a healthcare system. We've got healthcare systems, and and right. and, and some of them work better than others, but all of them, all of them are are nibbling at the margins when they try to do these reforms. And I know we'll talk about. Um, the kinds of things we would do to fix the system, which is what this is all about. And, but they have to be higher level things than than what we're looking at right now. If you patch prior authorization, if you patch surprise billing, if you patch these kinds of things, you've got a patch. And, and I promise you that there will be some challenges with those patches. And it may actually have unintended consequences that make the system not more responsive, but less responsive that's, to both wow, physicians and patients. But even, even within those systems that you mentioned, there is uh, no, uh, there's very little intercommunication. I mean, I know uh, right. back in the, in the Bush administration, there was a big uh, initiative to have a national EHR, right? The electronic health record. That hasn't happened. We have what, over 400 right. electronic medical. I, every day I get at least two or three uh, bot messages to my email box or LinkedIn uh, asking me about my, uh, you know, it's got a whole vocabulary, right? My RCM, right? right. Revenue cycle management. That's a fancy word for billing and collecting. That's it right. shouldn't be that complicated, right? It, it shouldn't be that complicated. And, and yet um, it, it's it's actually creating bigger silos, as you mentioned. Medical records are a classic example. The federal yeah. government spent $30 billion, $30 billion mandating that, that, that physicians and physicians' offices and hospitals have an electronic medical record. This is good, this, this is good for the patient. It allows there to be one, one place where the patient's information is. The problem is, is that, as you said, there are tens, if not hundreds of different electronic medical record systems, and they don't speak to each other. So At if you all. think about the real challenge and what, what, what the real solution is, it's, and it, it's having the federal government step back and say, okay, we don't want to dictate to you what medical record system you use, but whatever system you use, it has to be able to talk at the upper level to every other system. And unless you do that, then it then it's it's garbage in garbage out. You've got you got one person speaking English, one person speaking Spanish or French or German or whatever it is, and it doesn't work. You can't communicate. You got a tower of Babel of 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 uh, electronic <laughs> medical records. That's a great analogy. Uh, it is a tower of Babel, and and um, the the you know my 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 own attempt at trying to improve at least initial access to musculoskeletal care has been this initiative of ortho now, and I can tell you that now I'm gonna be flying to Wyoming where we're, we're, we're gonna be opening one. But you know, I know they're gonna be using a different medical record system. So the problem is I can't, we can't collect that data to then go to you know, my buddy at Blue Cross Blue Shield and say, look, I'm telling you that when that person has an ankle sprain or back pain, 
it is much more cost effective to do what you said to see the right clinician at the at that right time because right. that's where we save the money. And there was an you know an outdated concept now of this gatekeeper of having somebody go to an overworked primary care colleague who really should be keeping us healthy, yeah. right? Should be overseeing chronic problems, and we make we make our patients go to them to then get this authorization. I mean, it is really an absurd concept. Yeah, another another classic example yeah. of, of of what what bureaucrats and policymakers think is the right thing. Right. You ought to have somebody see a primary care doctor before they see anybody else. Sounds good, right? But the but but the, yeah. the premise for that is that every primary care physician knows exactly where that patient ought to go. I'll tell you who the best person to decide where the patient goes is the patient. Um, because they're the one that has the most at stake. So if a patient believes they ought to go to a dermatologist for a particular problem without a referral or a plastic surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or a, or a, a GI specialist or a urologist or, a, or an infectious disease doctor, whatever it is, the patients ought to be the ones that are making those decisions. And when you do that, you actually create a more functioning system and a more responsive system to the end user, the patient. And that's kind of what we've lost. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The end user. I've, I've, I've used that same exact term. Amazing. Uh, I remember my mom went to see the the famous uh, Augusto Sarmiento. Yeah. Gus Sarmiento, you know, was president of Academy of Orthopedic sure. Surgeons. Uh, also bilingual, though my mom being an interpreter, she probably spoke to him in English. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, my, my mom knows quite a bit of medicine and she thought there was a problem with her hip. I'll never forget. Uh, Gus said to her, Oh no, you have the bones of a horse. I mean, her hips were, and 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 yet in that case, in that case, that was a rare instance where you know Dr. Sarmiento said, no, you need to see more of a belly person. You know, somebody who's going to understand right. that your pain is coming from somewhere uh, in in the pelvic area, not the hip. Right. But the majority of the times, you're right. The patient does know they need to see an orthopedist versus a dermatologist, right. and we need to have the patients uh, have more control. Uh, but that also requires them to be educated. So I'm, that's going to yeah. I'm going to launch into uh, the, the three initiatives uh, and that we've already discussed some of mine. So I want to hear what your three top initiatives would be to really disrupt and improve U.S. healthcare. Well, I, I really appreciate this opportunity because so rarely do we truly talk about the real solutions in, in healthcare. And, and, and you've asked me to, to, to kind of give you my three uh, solutions to how to fix the healthcare system uh, that, that we have. There, I've got a number more than three. However, my top three are one, uh, you got to get folks covered. Universal coverage is absolutely okay. imperative. And some of my conservative friends say, oh, Price, you can't do that. That means the government's going to be in charge. The real thing is that you can have universal coverage without putting the government in charge. You just have to set up the system in the right way. Not having insurance, being uninsured in our system right now doesn't work. Uh, when when your dad and your granddad or, you, or, or folks in your family were, were physicians before, and my dad and my granddad were docs, it was a different world. You, you, you could take care of folks because the margins were greater in medicine. So the right. physician, if, if he or she took care of somebody who didn't have insurance and wasn't able to charge them or didn't charge them, then, then that didn't affect the bottom line significantly for that doc. Today, however, the margins are so getting so significantly small, you can't do that anymore. So everybody has to have insurance. How do you do that? Second thing, you got to make certain that however individuals get insurance, the patient owns the coverage. And whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, the employer-sponsored insurance, whatever it is, the patient has to own the policy. And the reason for that is that the insurance company right now, if, if you recommend something for a patient 
and and the insurance company says no uh, we don't believe that's necessary and the patient calls the insurance company what does the insurance company say they say call somebody who cares because we don't because you don't control your insurance somebody else does your employer or the government or somebody else so if the patient owns the policy and can move that money move that policy money based upon their needs and their desires, then the insurance company has to be responsive to the patient. And then finally, the third one is to make certain that we we, we uh, regain the physician-patient relationship, regain the trust between doctors and patients. The only way to do that that I know of is to make certain that physicians and patients and families are the ones that are making medical decisions and not anybody else. Right now, you got all these other folks out there that are making medical decisions. Used to be that we didn't allow the corporate practice of medicine businesses making medical decisions. Now we've got a veiled corporate practice of medicine where, where insurance companies or employers or, or government are, are making medical decisions. They don't say that. They don't. That, that, that's not how it's written, but that's the effect of the system that we have. So getting everybody covered, making certain that the patient and his or her family owns the health insurance and making certain that we restore that physician-patient relationship and trusting relationship. Uh, that'll go a long way to solving the true problems that we have. Oh, that, that's amazing. In fact, uh, that's kind of the first time I remember it articulated that way. Point number two of the patient owning their insurance. Um, let me ask you, you, you know, you, you've been on, on the Hill for quite a while. The current stakeholders, whether it be the big insurance companies, uh, the, the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, and, and or, uh, big pharma and all, I mean, how difficult is it going to be, with, you know, in, in, you know in, in the swamp, right, to get the, the lobbyists to, to, to finally come together and, 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 and make that kind of change uh, so that they don't feel threatened? Because in the end, I think there's enough money in the system for everybody to do well, correct? Okay. So how do you think we can achieve that? There's more than enough money in the system. We waste so much money in the air in, in, in healthcare, more than enough money in the system to be able to have a system that's actually, again, responsive to patients. You ask how difficult is it going to be? Extraordinarily difficult. Uh, we, we've been we've been trying for decades, and I know you you've been working at this for a long, long time. I started in this in the in the late '70s, early '80s, trying to move us in a, in a, in a better direction. The problem is is that the folks that are most at risk, that is the patients, are the ones who are least organized and 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 have the right. fewest resources in order to affect the, the 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 system and so they rely on we all rely on advocates out there to 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 say okay help us out whether it's double arp whether it's an advocate advocacy group for a specific disease or or or, or illness whether it's pro professionals whether it's docs that are relying on their their professional association and all these folks have a limited view about what it is that needs to be fixed. And that's why we get these little glommed on uh, solutions that, 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 that are passed in DC. That's why we need statesmen and stateswomen in, 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 in public policy arenas, the, the decision makers, the policy makers, to, to look above all of that, to look over all of that and see that the system needs to be fixed from the top as opposed to just these little, these little nickel and dime solutions that may help uh, but they don't solve anything at its core. So extraordinarily difficult. It's going to take a a, a group of 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 uh, patients and and others out there to advocate and say we we know what the what the kinds of solutions look like, and they're not small. They're big. They're major solutions, and we don't want the crisis that we know is coming, which is right. where you get rationing of care because the system Definitely. then can't afford to be able to and, and the shortage of physicians because they're Absolutely. they're frustrated. I mean, I have two colleagues. I've said it before 
who are retiring this this spring. Yep. One is one was my intern. My intern yeah. is retiring well before I, and another was my fellow co-resident. So this is a this is a big storm on its way. It is. Uh, the question is, how do you get the public to care as much about this as they did, uh, for example, with the whole, you know, defund the police or yeah. Black Lives Matter? I mean, those were social movements that did create some change. This is twenty yeah. percent of our economy, healthcare. Yeah. People only seem to care when it affects them or a loved one. And, and, and this has to change. You're absolutely right. It's education. And 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 you really can't blame folks. Most folks are busy out there. Yeah. Uh, it's about 4% of the population that is accessing the healthcare at any one point in time. 4%. No, I've never and, and, that. Okay. and about half of them are, are mad as they can be. That means 2% of the population are, are are desirous of that absolute acute change that is so necessary from a fundamental uh, standpoint. Um, but that 2% isn't, isn't constant. It's, that 2% is dynamic. It changes. You may be accessing the system one day, the next week, so the problem solved, or the next month, the problem solved, and somebody else that's in that 2%. So they're hard to mobilize. So right, but, education but, progress has to, has to occur. But education and, and is partly based on, let's face it, the media. I mean, that's, that's right. how people learn. And, and the question is, when is the media going to care about this issue as much as they did about, say, you know, racial di- disparity and, and issues? Yeah. When, when are they going to care about the fact that I think healthcare is a pretty important topic, but the, the economics of it is overwhelming. I mean, 20% yeah. of our GDP now. So the question is, when is an interview like this going to actually you know, be noticed by popular media and say, let's let's expand this. Let's take this beyond an 18 or 20 minute talk and really bring this to the public. Yeah. I have I have not seen that yet. No, nor have I. And I'm, I, I remain hopeful and prayerful that we can that that, that that can actually happen. However, my fear, my concern is that it won't happen until we have a true crisis. And that crisis yeah. is not far away. It's not, not 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. It, it is literally right around the corner. And it gets to the heart of, of the lack of funding that's going to be available for the government programs, especially Medicare. When you when, when Medicare runs out of money, which means they won't be able to provide the services that have been promised to the seniors, then you'll have a crisis on your hands because that the only thing that the government can do is then ration care. And it's likely that that's what they will do. They won't call it that, but that's what they will do. And then there will be a crisis. And then you will see people get up in arms and, and complain about it. And that's when the media will begin to pay attention. The concern that I have about that, I, I'm, I'm fearful that that is going to happen. The problem is that when that happens, you don't know what the outcome is going to be because our dear friends on the left will say, the solution has to be for the government to take more control of healthcare, not less. <laughs> Which is already the problem, yes. Which is already but, the problem, exactly. So you have founded um, this, uh, uh, well, you were, a, I think, a charter member of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, right? The AAPS, which is really, you know, tends to be a conservative group, but really cares about about our healthcare system. And this is was founded many years ago. And yet there's been, you know, there's there's been very little traction of this. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, your group, that group has been pointing out these problems for quite a while. So, yeah, so. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and one of the things that, that gives me pause as well is that, that, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the, the, the waning years of my engagement in public policy and in, in medicine. And I appreciate that and understand that. Um, but when I started, 
the, the average physician getting out of medical school, he or she, they viewed their ideal role in medicine was, was, was in private practice and right. basically owning their own business. Um, that, that's completely flipped now so that the average medical student, student getting out, he or she, does, their, their ideal situation that they envision for themselves in practice is to be an employed physician. And when you have employed physicians, then then the individuals making decisions are higher up and tend to be further away from the right. direct patient care. That's a danger that we have. So uh, uh, it, 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 but, it, it's a yeah, real problem. Everything is a pendulum, though, right? right. In society. So I, I think it's starting to swing uh, to swing back to some degree. Some of these employed physicians are realizing that it's not that gratifying. And, right. and yes, they start out with great. I, I experienced this myself with a colleague I wanted to bring on. You know, they, they want that initial great package. Sure, that sounds great. But then later on, they, they don't have the control necessarily. And uh, right. even the doctors. Uh, so we, uh, uh, you know, actually, I'm, I'm proud to say we are way over time. It's only because these are great. So, and I have to give my three initiatives, which we discussed all. So my first one would be all oversight, not authorization. Right. Very different, right? We do need oversight. We make mistakes. There's bad apples amongst doctors like there are amongst uh uh, attorneys, well, I won't go there, but <laughs> or uh, um, or you know, uh, plumbers or accountants, right? Um, there, you mentioned also right clinician at the right time. Yep. That right there saves a lot of money. Medicine is too complex nowadays to have, you know, the country uh, doctor like your grandfather. You, you right. can't know everything, right? And the last one is what we're doing right now, which is public education. But I want to add something to that. We need public engagement. Yes. And that is what we not get. And I, I can tell when we put this on social media, when, you know, we have, you know, a couple people who forward this. But boy, if I if I post a picture of, a you know, of my uh, of, of my sister's cute dog, there is, you know, thousands of and that has to change. People have to care about this. Yeah, um, I can't I, rival that cute dog. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. See, we all like that. Um, Dr. Price, really been a, a pleasure and an honor to have you. Uh, on our, our podcast, if there's ways that we can uh, escalate this discussion, uh, I, I'd love to hear thoughts from from the listeners and see how can we we really make some changes. I think we are, as you said, nibbling at the margins, but yep. we need to. This needs to be a real movement. Well, I look forward to that feedback as well. Thanks for this opportunity, and uh, uh, keep 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 up the battle. It's an incredibly important battle for the patients of this country. It is. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Be well.